The Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is brought to you by Go Wild. Go Wild is a social media application for your smart device or now even on your desktop. I've been using Go Wild for a while, and here's what I want you to know. What it is, it's a social media application. It's like Facebook, like Instagram, like any of those things. But the whole purpose behind Go Wild is to promote outdoor content. You can go on here. You can see exactly what you want to see, whatever um, type of content you want to see, whether that be fishing, hunting, whitetail hunting, bear hunting, um, turkey hunting, just anything like that. You have so many endless options that you can check out and you can subscribe to each one of those things. And that's what you see. It's really cool, especially now in a day where social media has uh, really completely gotten out of hand. Um, Every time I log into Facebook, Instagram, or anything like that, all I'm seeing is negativity. Well, with Go Wild, you're going to see a bunch of positive people that love the outdoors as much as you and I do. So go and check out Go Wild on your smartphone or even on your desktop. This is the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of time plus 1% of money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and money back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for Conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Ewing, and this is Episode 5. On today's episode, I am joined by Ethan Demai. Now, Ethan... um, is a little bit different in terms of guests that I've spoken to from uh, up to this point. Uh, Ethan is actually a business owner of a 2% certified company. Uh, He owns a guiding service. And Ethan and I really go over a a wide variety of stuff today. Um, We talk about um, how he left his job in construction of 10 plus years um, and decided to make a go at um, pursuing a business in in the outdoor industry um, and why he decided to make sure that that business was 2% certified. Um, Ethan has a a great story in here about some conservation work uh, that he did that I'm I'm really excited for you guys to hear. And to me, it's, it's kind of the epitome of average people doing um, extraordinary work uh, in the field of conservation. Uh, It's a great conversation. We sprinkle in um, some personal uh, hunting stories, which is always fun to to discuss. Um, I mean, hunting is conservation. Fishing is conservation. Uh, So wanted to make sure we talked a little bit about that. Um, It's uh, it was a really fun, uh, a fun time speaking with Ethan. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to take a minute to tell you about our partners over at Stone Glacier. Uh, I actually just received um, some packs that I'd ordered from from them, and I received the uh, Avail 2200, which is actually going to be my whitetail pack for the year. Um, Actually going to hopefully start to put it through its paces this weekend, doing some work, uh, getting some stands up, hanging some trail cameras, uh, and really see what this thing's made of. I uh, also received the Sky 5900, uh, which for you Western hunters is a great uh, all-around you know, five to seven day pack for, for guys that are putting their, their camp on their back and, and moving around and are trying to stay as mobile as possible when they're out in the back country. Uh, I mean, at first glance, these things are bomb-proof. Uh, I mean, they just, the, the feel, uh, the fit of them is just, uh, it's just second to none, and, and I'm really um, excited about them. Um, you can actually check out Stone Glacier 
through a new app that they have, um, whether it's um, you have a uh, Apple device or Android, you can download their app uh, on iTunes or Google Play and really stay up to date with all the latest happenings uh, with Stone Glacier. Um, and you can also check out their website, stoneglacier.com, uh, where you can check out all their different packs, uh, some backpacking tents that they have, um, and a lot of technical outerwear, base layers, uh, really everything that you need for the hunt. Uh, again, you can check them out at stoneglacier.com. All right. On the phone with me today, I have Ethan Demai. Ethan, how's it going, man? I'm doing great, man. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Thank you. So, Truth be told, um, full disclosure, so Ethan, you and I were introduced via text, uh, what, maybe two weeks ago, I'd say it was? Yeah, uh, Jared Frazier just kind of like lumped us into a, a group text like without any heads up and like just kind of dropped the mic and walked off. You know, it was like one text, hey guys, introduce yourselves, I'm out. Yeah, Marcus, this is Ethan. Ethan, this is Marcus. Uh, you guys take it from here. Um, which, I mean, it's, it's worked out pretty well. Um, Very efficient. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we uh, we exchanged uh, a few text messages and played some phone tag. Uh, finally, we were able to uh, speak to one another yesterday. We spoke for, what, five minutes maybe. And, yeah. you know, I, I knew that we were going to have you on the podcast. But just after our short little interaction yesterday, I was like, no, we we need to record something now because your story is is very unique. And I think it's one that, uh, you know, one that needs to be he- told and one that needs to be heard. So here we are, you know, less than 24 hours later <laughs> recording an episode. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. Yeah. I mean, when I heard that you guys were doing a podcast, I was just like, I thought to myself, I'm like, hmm, I have a weird story. People might find it interesting, you know? So, um, yeah. So go ahead. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly what, you know, the podcast is for is, is there's so many unique, uh, stories and individuals out there, uh, in the world of conservation that, you know, I mean, you're, you're a lot like me, like you're just a regular dude and, you know, you're from Pennsylvania, I'm from Michigan, but you know, we're, we don't have this like mass following on social media or anything like that. So no one really knows our story. So for 2% to help give us a platform is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, one thing we have in common is, uh, we share like two of the largest standing armies in, uh, in the United States come deer season, you know, it's like the, <laughs> our states are unfortunately credited with like the most hunters per square mile it goes back and forth. I think between us, I think Texas is in there too. Yeah. At least Texas. I mean, it, it, well, I mean, it's what one of the biggest states that we yeah. have, but at least, so at least they can get spread out a little bit with Michigan, man, it seems to be everyone concentrated in a very small area. And I'm sure it's, you know, I mean, Pennsylvania is yeah. pretty good size, but yeah, still. Yeah, it's same same deal. So yeah. I think last year we had uh, we used to have a, a million license sales. Uh, I think it's dropped off into like nine hundred and some thousand, which is still a lot, you know. Yeah. So, so before we kind of get into to some of the good stuff here, so how exactly were you introduced to the outdoors? <laughs> um, just growing up, my dad did more hunting and fishing than anybody I knew really, and um, it was just introduced to me at a very young age. You know, whether it was shooting BB guns off the porch, like you know, when he got home from work or, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, just, uh, you know, going on the fishing, you're going fishing on the weekends or when he got home from work. And then, you know, I mean, I don't know about Michigan, but Pennsylvania, you gotta be 12, 12 years old to hunt, you know? And it was just like, it was just, my whole childhood was just spent counting down till I was 12 till I was able to go out and hunt with him. And, and in the meantime, you know, I was tagged, you know, to, I'm sure it didn't add any sort of efficiency to his hunting, but I was always tagging along with him even before I was allowed to hunt myself, you know? So, um, once I turned 12, it was it. So, yeah. So you, so you were introduced early, which is, you know, I've had, you know, a handful of guests that I've spoken to thus far. And I've had a couple who told me they were introduced to hunting later in life. And then, you know, some, and, and I, I would fall in the same category with you there where I, I started at a, a very young age, you know? Yeah. It's, um, it's weird to think about, like, I, I often try to put myself like in the, in the other perspective where like you're introduced to hunting, like maybe in your twenties or thirties, like later in life, you know, like, like you and I, like we were just, it was normal to us growing up. And it was like, by the time you shot your first deer, like you weren't old enough to wrestle, like with the ethics of like, how do I feel about this? Like, where do I stand? And it's just like, it was, it was normal. And I, I often think about people that, that come into hunting and, you know, later in life, like you know, what that must be like, you know, like I, I'd probably be super emotional too, if I took something's life for the first time and, and, you know, and then like wrestling with like the food aspect and all this stuff. And, um, you know, it was funny. I just took my girlfriend hunting, uh, for the first time ever this spring and, and she shot her first Turkey and she walked up and, you know, she cried stuff. And, you know, and I'm just like, 
like, I'd probably do the same thing if I was in my twenties. That was the first time I ever had that interaction. It was funny. You know, I'm like, I'm like, look, like this thing, like it's the best, like this is the quickest death this thing is ever going to have in the wild. Right. You yeah. know? And it's just like, and ironically the day before that we're driving on the highway and there's a tractor trailer packed full of like domestic turkeys going. <laughs> I'm like, at least he wasn't one of those birds like on that truck. This thing had a lot better life. You know, I was like a three year old bird too, you know? And it was funny by the time we got back to the truck, she's like, yeah, I'd probably shoot another one. <laughs> See, there you go. It just takes one to, to kind of, you know, break the ice, but that's, I mean, that's a really good, uh, way of looking at it and something that I've never really considered of, yeah, it was to, to, to hunt, to fish. Like that stuff was all normal growing up, right? Like I never really batted an eye at it. Um, yeah. my wife, I've, I've been trying to get, I don't know why I've been trying to get her to come hunting with me. Cause it's, you know, one of the things I'm able to do by myself and on my own, but you know, I just enjoy it so much that I want her to, to partake in it. Sure. And she refuses. She's like, I love venison. I love that you hunt. Um, but there's no way I'm going to watch you kill an animal. I was like, well, yeah. luckily for you, you probably aren't going to have to see that. Cause it's not like I'm killing animals every time I'm out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it was, it was funny. Like there was this progression with her. It was like, we first started dating. She was like, she's never hunted, never fished. She's like, I won't eat wild game. I'm like, just try it. She's like, no, like I've had venison. I don't like it. I'm like, look, most hunters aren't good cooks. Like, I think that's yeah. fair to say. Right? Yeah, like, no, that's very fair to say. So I'm just like, look, I said, let me, let me make you one meal. If you don't like it, you know, then we'll, we'll, well, I'll never, I'll never bug you again. Like I'll just drop it and that's it. You know? So I made her, I think it was like caribou Parmesan or something. And she was like, I hate to admit it, but this is pretty good. So then I kept making stuff and she liked all of it. Long story short, now she eats wild game. Almost, like I don't buy any meat from a store so yeah. that's pretty much how she eats and then um went to florida to guide some bow fishing down there and uh you know she was like uh she never killed anything you know but she's like i want to learn how to shoot the bow well I, she's like i'm not gonna shoot any fish i just want to shoot the bow so she's shooting the bow and then like next thing you know i see her like shooting at stingrays you know that it was like then she wants to get one and then she does get one and then i talk her into like her favorite wild game meat is turkey and i'm just like and, I, and i'm like come on you could shoot a turkey like they're ugly they don't people don't have like an emotional attachment they to don't either She's like, I, I could probably watch you shoot a turkey. Well, then I get her out in the woods. I get her to shoot a turkey. And now I got her talked into deer hunting. So it's just been like, you know, it's just the progression of things. Yeah, that's awesome. Start with uh, start with slimy stuff in the water that no one cares about. And then just work your way up from, you know, small, medium-sized game with turkeys up to, you know, up to deer. So it's strategic, you know? Yeah, I'm not just going to out just walk out. That, I mean, that's, you're rolling the dice on that one, you know? Yeah, and I think that's where where my wife has a, a a bit of a, a problem with it because in, in some of the past houses we've lived in, um, like we were in a, a pretty suburban area and we would get, you know, neighborhood deer, you know, there'd be little pockets of woods that you would get some deer hanging out and they would be in our backyard and they're just, you know, urban deer are just way different than deer that we experience yeah. out in the wild. You know, they're just, they're not scared by my dog. They're not scared by us walking outside. So yeah, it, uh, it kind of tainted her vision a little bit, I think. Yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely. I don't know when you see deer in the park or the golf course, it gives you a skew, skewed perspective on what deer are. You know, it's like yeah, yeah, those but, those deer aren't tuned in or turned on like uh, like a deer. You know, come early mid November. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. You know, it's I, I always say people are like people are like man, I don't see what the challenge is in killing one. They just stand in the middle of the road. You beef. They don't like. I'm like. You know what? I'm not going to change your perspective. You're right. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Those, yeah, those are conversations. I just, I just shake my head and say, yeah, yeah. You know, you're, like you said, you're probably right. I, like, I do question it myself sometimes. Like, you know, we've all lost our mind in like October, November for like a month and a half, and come out empty-handed. And then you're like driving down the highway, and like one's like left, right, left, right. Which way do I go? And it's just like, and they turn around and run right in front of the truck, and it's like. How does that happen after I just lost my mind for six weeks trying to hunt one down in the woods? Yeah. How do you pick me off from a hundred yards away with the slightest of scent, but yet you yeah. get hit by a Mack truck trying to, you know, that you can see coming. It just, I, yeah. I can't answer that one myself. No. So, um, so. so Ethan, um, you're also a little bit different, uh, in terms of some of the guests I've spoken to where I've spoken to a lot of, um, committee members for 2%, but you mm -hmm. actually run and own a business that is 2% certified. Tell me about that. Yeah. Uh, so last year I officially started my own guide service called refraction guide service. Um, and, uh, I guide bow fishing and I guide waterfowl in upstate New York. Um, so 
I was, you know, I, <clears throat> I was standing in my kitchen and I was making dinner the one night and I had, uh, I had Ronella's podcast on and I don't quote me on it, but I think it was like episode 36 or something. And, um, I think it was Jeff, uh, Spazito, am I saying that right? And, uh, and Pete and Unicon, on and they were talking about 2% and they were talking about the gold Alliance. And at that point, 2% was like, that was the first time it was introduced to me. And I'm, I'm just listening to them talk about the platform. And I'm just like, I remember thinking like, man, I can't believe nobody's done that before. And yeah. I was in the process of starting my guide service and, uh, you know, I'm just sitting there thinking like, man, that would be, that would be pretty cool, you know? And, and, and I was also kind of conflicted with, well, I'm going to be running a guide service on public waters, right? So it's like, this is, I could launch my boat on public waters and not essentially not really have to pay for it. You know what I mean? Right, it's just, right. I mean, I mean, license sales and stuff or whatever, but, um, but I, I just felt like I owed something. Uh, if I was going to be going out there and running a business on public waters, I felt obligated to give something back. Um, so I was like, this is, this be cool. You know? So I, I, I called and I talked to Jared for a good while on the phone and, um, long story short, I got my, uh, my business 2% certified and it's led to some really cool opportunities and hence sitting here with you and, uh, you know, just the chance to talk to some really cool people and, and see some cool things. So. Yeah. And that's, I, I'll echo that same thing. I mean, um, my company, uh, the average conservationist is 2% certified as well. And in just the short time with having the podcast of, you know, recording episodes for the last you know month, month and a half or so, the people that, yeah, I've spoken to that, you know, I, I probably never would have before is, is awesome. And it's, it's opened up so many doors and just, you know, you meet a lot of cool people, right? Like there's, I spoke with, um, was a gentleman down in uh, Georgia, Mark Haslam, uh, one of my one of our first episodes, and you know we've stayed in contact since we've recorded. You know, so it's it's cool to have to build relationships with a lot of like minded people from you know, <clears throat> excuse me, from across the country. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, just as well as I do, um, like the relationships that are built in hunting, uh, like in the hunting and, and fishing. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm more of a hunter, so I'm gonna say hunting. Uh, yeah. Uh, in that community, like you go to hunting camp, whatever those relationships that are built in that setting are just like, I don't know, they're just unmatched. But like, aside from that, like as you progress as a hunter and, and consider yourself more of a conservationist and then like, um, you kind of get, you tap into that community more, um, the, the density of like true conservationists that are in the hunting community, there's not that many of us out there. You know, if you look at like the percentage of the U S population, like five to 6% of the U S population, I think hunts, well, how many out of those would you really consider true conservationists? And it's like, once you tap into that pipeline of people, like it is a very unique, very unique mindset and very unique, like click of people. And, uh, it's just, yeah, it's, you know, it just immediately, you just hit it off with people. And, um, yeah, it's been great. Yeah. It's interesting. You say that, that, a lot of people probably consider themselves, you know, hunters, right? Not necessarily conservationists. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's like every, I think every hunter who's who's serious about it and who's done it long enough, they get to that point where something kind of clicks and it's not just about killing an animal, right? Right. It's about, yeah. it's about you know, improving the habitat that they live in. It's about giving them, you know, safe places. Like, for, for example, here in Michigan, you know, I hunt on um, primarily private land for, for deer. And we have... Uh, 140 acres or so. And, you know, we actually brought in a land specialist this year to help give us a better idea of how we can, you know, improve a lot of the habitat that's already there. It's, it's very diverse. I mean, we've got, you know, portions of a lake, we got swamps, we got rolling hills, hard, you know, we've got pretty much everything that, you know, mid Michigan has to offer, uh, in terms of terrain. So figuring out how we can best utilize that. And I think that kind of takes it one step further. Yeah. It's going to help us, uh, in terms of, you know, hopefully harvesting, you know, older class deer, but it's going to give them, you know, better food source, uh, bedding, you know, stuff like that, which I think that's where the conservation aspect really comes in. Yeah. That's, that's what kills me when people are like, Oh, the only reason you, you plant those food plots is so you kill them. It's like, what do I kill off that property Two a year? You know what I mean? And you're just like all the other ones that benefit from it. And then like, you know, all the other wildlife that, that benefits from it too. But, um, but back to the, the conservation thing, it's like, um, I, like you said, hunting is more than killing an animal and stuff like that. And I think that like, I don't know where the threshold is. It's different for everybody, but once you like kind of outgrow, like, okay, so, you know, the, the saying hunting is conservation. Sure it is. Right. Mm -hmm. But a lot of hunters couldn't tell you how it's conservation. And outside of that, they probably wouldn't consider themselves a conservationist. They're just like, I'm a conservationist cause I hunt. Once you like outgrow that and you take it to the next level, I think that's when like stuff really starts to change. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know exactly 
when it was for me. I mean, like, as I got older, I got more involved with like QDMA and stuff like you're talking about the land management and stuff. But I think I had a real big epiphany with it when, uh, I, uh, I went to hunt Alaska for the first, well, first and only time I've hunted Alaska, but, um, I, I went there and we did a fly-in trip for caribou. It was self-guided and uh, we flew in with a bush plane company. And um, as we're flying in, you know, and we're just flying in around all this crazy stuff. And, uh, you know, just over mountains, rivers, like just looking at grizzly bear, like moose, caribou, all this stuff. And like, I mean, being an Eastern deer hunter, you're just like, oh my God, you're like a, just like a Complete kid. shock and awe. Yeah, you're glued to the window. And um, what was funny is when we were flying in there, um, the... Uh, the pilot so we're taking you to a spot that we call meat eater and i'm like why do you call it meat eater he said oh well steve ranella and, and and his guys were the only guys that ever hunted here before or this is whatever this is a spot we take them and uh and i was like oh that's cool at the time i didn't watch the show if i'm being completely honest i stopped watching outdoor television because i couldn't relate to most of the shows on outdoor television yeah um so I just kind of just stopped watching it all together. So he was like, oh, yeah, you know, Steve Rennell and these guys, they, they filmed an episode up here or whatever. And I was like, oh, cool, whatever. Like, I, I really did. It meant nothing to me, you know. So anyways, fast forward. I go on the trip. Had an amazing trip. Uh, got an awesome bull caribou with my bow. Um, and I sat on top of this mountain and just looking around. And it was just like you just had this like just not to sound cliche, but like this overwhelming feeling of just like feeling like so small and irrelevant in this vast landscape. And you're looking around and you're 90 miles off the road system. And it's just like I sat on top of that mountain and I'm like, okay, like this is like the whole, you know, conservation, public land, all that stuff is like, that's when I really got to see it through like, you know, like firsthand. Yeah. And, um, so I just, I don't know. I just like something shifted there and I kind of like developed a love for like Western hunting and, and public land stuff. And, um, I got out of there, I got home and I, you know, curiosity got the best of me. So I was like, I got to watch this show. I've never seen it before. And I, I'm like, I'm, I'm sifting through and I find the episode where they're hunting there and I'm like, Oh no kidding. Like that's exactly where I hunted. That's cool. <laughs> and then in watching the show, I was like, man, I like this guy, you know, like, cause like Steve like carries himself very differently than, than anybody else, uh, in, like an outdoor community or outdoor television. And I'm like, man, I like this guy. This guy's different. And, uh, so I, I started to watch the show and then I started to listen to his podcast and, um, you know, truth be told like that, that had a lot to do with my progression as a conservationist and hunter, um, everything, um, you know, the way I butcher game, whatever. But the, the ironic thing is, uh, if you read Mark Kenyon's book, um, sure. yep, I have that wild country. So, uh, what's funny is he sat on top of the same mountain in Alaska that I did. Um, you know, and he writes about that in his book and that Alaska trip was a big part of, of, of it for him as well. And, and ironically, I sat on top of that same mountain or the one next to it, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. And, uh, just had like similar feelings and it, it had a very similar effect on me. So, um, yeah, I mean, my only experience with Alaska is yet yeah, through the, the lens of a TV. Um, and it, I mean, it's wild, man. So I can see how, you know, whether you were speaking about Mark Kenyon, you know, yourself, how it has that that effect on you and, and how it <clears throat> really um, gives you that appreciation for it because that's, I mean, that's the type of stuff that, you know, you can't get anywhere else. You can't get that that emotional high, that that feeling from reading a book, watching TV, you know, whatever it is. I mean, you, you've got to be in it to feel it with something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I'd love to just like bump into Mark and like just grab a beer and be like, hey, you know that mountain you sat on top of in Alaska? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Me too. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny. It's it's a very like six degrees of separation. But my brother in law um, worked with Mark Kenyon when they were in college together. My brother in law, I think, is a few years older than him. Um, but this was back, you know, I mean, ten years ago or so. It, it, somewhere in there. I don't want to pinpoint it. But uh, when he was still in college, um, and he was like, oh, yeah, there's uh, this guy that I work with. He's like, I don't really know him that well. He's like, but, I, you know, I know of him enough that uh, he started like this hunting blog. And this was, you know, way before he was doing like the whole podcast thing. I think it was just still when it was the Wired to Hunt blog. He's like, yeah, he talks a lot about like whitetails and, and stuff like that. He's like, oh, yeah, you should check it out. And reluctantly, I just I never did. I wasn't sure. he, I wasn't nearly into hunting 10 years ago like I am now. I wasn't as obsessed as I am now. And you know, some time passes and, you know, Mark obviously has done extremely great things and he's done really well for himself, um, with the wired to hunt and then being part of meat eater now. Um, and it's like, oh yeah, that's kind of a small world that, you know, you're like, oh yeah, I used to work with that guy. I mean, I don't, 
and he told me he's like you know even if i walked up to him and said something i don't necessarily know that he would remember or recognize me but he's like you know when when you're talking to someone like that you definitely remember him yeah it, it definitely it reminds you like how small of a community that uh that you know the like the hunting community and, and the conservation community is you know i mean the chances of like you know two eastern deer hunter like just winding up on top of the same mountain in alaska you know it's just like yeah, it's such I mean, a small world yeah even uh you know a lot i mean what at least three guys from the media deer crew are from you know michigan here with uh ranella and uh Giannis patelis and then you know mark kenning obviously being from michigan as well so it's yeah it's kind of weird to see um you know some midwest guys that are, are doing so much especially with western hunting yeah and i think a couple of them are from pennsylvania too um so yeah, yeah. and then obviously like bo martonic he's here in pa and yep. he's killing it too man he, i mean what he's done is awesome it's just kind of a similar story to mark kenny it's just he really paved the way for himself and has done really well so yeah yeah it's another uh good podcast to listen to as well yeah so you own um a, a guide service that does waterfowl and bow fishing yes bow fishing how did did, did that get started because obviously i'm familiar with bow fishing i've never done it before but i've never I've, i think i've spoken to one guy at an outdoor show who 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 does guiding for bow fishing here in michigan so i mean how did how did you get started with that um well first of all you'll have to make your way out to new york and, and do some bow fishing if you could free up some time man yeah. um uh, but honestly it was the same it was the same thing for me uh i just i knew of it i never had the opportunity to do it there's obviously not that many people out there that do it in comparison to guiding for fishing or other things right. and uh I was at an outdoor show and I got introduced to this guy that was like, Hey, this guy guides bow fishing. I'm like, Oh no kidding. I've always wanted to try that. So, um, I went up there and, and, uh, you know, so I went up there, I tried it and it's just like, I mean, it was just ridiculously fun. You can't even believe it's legal. You know, it's just like, <laughs> and I just like, I just kept, uh, I just kept bringing them groups of people like every, you know, every, like, you know, not every Friday in the summer, but a lot of them, I would bring them a group of people and I would shoot for free and it was great. It was fine and dandy. I didn't have a boat payment. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, sure. Um, you know, and I, I feel, I mean, obviously I'm not going to drop any names here, but I feel comfortable in saying, saying this cause I, I I'm positive. He's not going to be listening to a conservation podcast, but the guy was not the most professional guy in the world. <laughs> um, you know, he was, uh, he, he was always drinking when he was driving the boat and it was like his D loops are frayed on his boat. His generator was spitting and sputter and his lights are falling off the boat. I mean, the guy is the best bow fisherman I know, like has like, you know, I mean like it's just he's so good, but it's just like, man, just the business thing is lacking. And all my friends and everybody were just pressuring me. They're like, man, like you should do after a few seasons or a couple seasons going with him. They're like, man, you should do this. And, um, you know, just get your own boat. Like just do, and I'm like, I don't know. And I kind of hemmed and hawed about it. And, uh, long story short, I ended up getting the boat. And then, uh, I was like, all right, well, if I'm going to, if I'm going to get the boat, it's a big, big chunk of change. And, and I'm, you know, obviously all the equipment stuff, I'm like, I'm gonna have to guide to, to pay it back. Um, so I started guiding and, uh, it just, it just took off, man. It's just like, I mean, people, I think every group that I've taken has come back and then brought other people too. And it's like, you know, like the season doesn't start until like May 15 and like January and February, people are like asking me to book dates cause they know the weekends fill up quick in the summer. So, um, yeah, it just, it just snowballed. It just took off on its own really. So what was, what was the tipping point? I guess where you finally said, okay, um, enough of the day job let's let's make the, let's make a career out of the outdoors um you know i i just never so i i've owned a construction company for um 10 i technically technically still own about 11 years and uh so right out of high school i started my own construction company and uh you know worked my way up to the point where i was building houses and and uh, built up a pretty solid business um and you know we we're building new homes and you know doing some remodel jobs and stuff too but uh you know build up a good stable business and you know for a while it was like okay this is like this is the dream i'm doing it you know and and uh after running it for a decade man it was just like the stress of employees and homeowners and and all this stuff just like just really wore me down and it was like um i just didn't love my job and it was like you know the employees and the homeowners and it's like i said nobody respects your personal time your phone's ringing nights weekends holidays sunday morning when you're in church father's day dinner like fourth of july and i'm just like and the way that people talk to you and it's just like people have no problem paying for recreation, right? Like, you know, like when you're going bow fishing, like, but when you're, you know, when you're working on somebody's bathroom, like nobody's having fun handing you that check, right. you know, yeah, yeah, different environment. And, um, so 
for the last three or four years, I've been starting to guide on the side. Um, I think it started, uh, it actually started with a nonprofit that I'm still current with. It's, uh, it's called Hunts for Healing, and we take post-9-11 wounded combat veterans out hunting and fishing. It's just a local little mom and pop uh, organization around me here in Northeast Pennsylvania. Um, and I, I started helping out there, and uh, it's located on a pheasant preserve. Um, and uh, you know, we hunt a lot of the private property around there for deer and turkey and stuff. And uh, but I'm around a guy. I'm around a lot of guys with bird dogs. So I I wanted to get my own bird dog. And I'm also interested in waterfowl. So I got a pointing lab. Um, so then I started taking him out. I trained him. I started taking him out guiding hunts for wounded veterans and stuff on the pheasant preserve. And then that kind of snowballed into the guy that owns the preserve asking me to guide for some of his clients when they come in if they don't have a dog. Um, and then. About the same time, probably uh, a, a very now a very good friend of mine. Um, uh, he has a guide service out in Missouri and uh, with about 5,500 acres, and uh, we guide whitetail hunts out there. And I started off just like a paying customer out there, and uh, became friends with him. And he needed some help around there, and uh, and you know they ended up asking me to help you know, help out guiding around there and stuff. And uh, so I started doing that probably three years ago or so. Um, you know, so it was like. You know, November, it was like I was pretty much gone. I was in the Midwest and it was like, so I would like, I'd slave away doing the construction, like trying to get everything done, you know, before the rut and everything. And uh, and then, you know, then I'm doing the, the pheasant stuff and the wounded veteran stuff. And then next thing you know, I'm guiding bow fishing on the weekends. And it was just like, it just got to the point. And like, at the same time, like, I don't think it's a coincidence. At the same time, more opportunities open themselves in the outdoors. I got more and more stressed out and fed up with the construction. And, um, you know, it was like to the and like to like at the end of it, like like I told you the other day on the phone, I had one foot in the door with construction. My heart was really in the outdoors. I mean, I like I remember we we're building a house on a lake last year, and uh, you know I'm banging plywood on the roof up there with the nail gun, and there's a flock of Canada's that were landing, you know, landing on the water, and I'm just kind of like in a daze, you know, just watching them land, like just totally stopped work and uh, yeah. production plummeted there for a minute, and. <laughs> And I'm just watching them land and I'm just like thinking about, man, I just can't wait till goose season this night. And the funny thing is my, my bird dog, he always goes to work with me. And, uh, I look down and, and he's like locked on the geese too. And like both of us are just in a daze just watching, you know, and I'm just like, yeah, it's kind of cool. And, um, but anyways, so to, to kind of wrap it up, um, I just had enough of it. And, uh, last year we were building two houses. And, uh, when we finished both of those houses, I decided I was done and, uh, I wrapped it up and I made a conscious decision. I was going to try to guide full time. Um, you know, so collectively between the bow fishing and the waterfowl and the upland and the whitetail, just to try to piece it together year round. And uh, I certainly don't make as much money as I did with the construction, but um, the stress level is uh, is a lot less. And I really, really love what I do. I mean, there's I mean, not to sound cliche, like there's there's a lot of nights where I'm just like, you know, the bow fishing's fun. People are having a good time and everybody's hooting and hollering. I'm just like, you know, all the time I think like, man, I can't believe this is my job. Like, I can't believe yeah, like, people I, are paying me for this. Right. Yeah. It's like and, and I remember uh, I remember last year, you know about the time when I decided that I, I need to try to make a living in the outdoors. Um, I had just, I had just taken a group out and, uh, we're on Seneca Lake, uh, one of the finger lakes, if you're familiar with them. And, uh, I'm driving back to the boat launch. It was a great group of guys. And, you know, we took group pictures and, and everything. And they're just kind of like smoking a cigar on the way back to the boat launch. And everybody's like super happy. I'm everybody's best friend. And, uh, <clears throat> I'm watching the sun come up over Seneca Lake and I'm just like, I got to figure out how to do this more, you know? And it's yeah. like, you get back and people are like, people are, you're not haggling people for money. Like you are with construction, right? It's like, mm -hmm. people are like, they're paying you and then they're tipping you. And then like, then they're like, when can we do this again? And I'm like, this is what I need to do. Yeah. <clears throat> it's uh, it's interesting you say that. Um, because yeah, there's, I mean, I've done, um, some guided, uh, fly fishing trips, uh, in Colorado and in other States, um, in the past. So, yeah, one, you don't really balk at the price um, because, you know, you got people that are helping you and that are going to, you know, essentially, you know, put you on fish or put, you know, they can't catch them for you, but, you know, they're going to put you where they know there's fish at. And sure. the eight hours or six hours, four hours, you know, depending on <clears throat> how long you go, like it goes super fast and you know you're going to tip them because you had a hell of a time. And yeah, when can we do it again? And that's... I mean, that's, that's what recreation, that's what the outdoors does to people, man. I mean, it's, it's such an escape for, for so many people, right. And for, for those of us and, you know, you specifically who can, you know, make a living out of doing that. I mean, that's, that's just awesome. And, and yeah, that's, that's one thing I noticed when I started this company, I mean, I had a job prior to this that I just was very unhappy in and I knew how much I love the outdoors and yeah, it, it, it's a pretty big leap 
and it's a little bit scary for sure. Um, but I think you did it the right way with, with having something kind of year round, you know, a different species. You know, I was, I was just thinking that as you were, as you were explaining it, I'm thinking, man, like this guy's got, you know, depending on what I want to do, I mean, I can just, I can just call Ethan. He's got me covered here, whether it's whitetail, waterfowl, upland. I mean, yeah, he's got it all there. Yeah, not not quite everything. I'm a little lacking in the Western stuff, but fortunately, uh, I have some friends and stuff out there that are pretty good at that stuff. So, yeah, that's good. But, um, now, aside from your business being two percent certified, what other um, conservation organizations are you a part of? Um, so I've been part of uh, like QDMA, Quality Deer Management Association, um, for years now, and then uh, Pheasants Forever because they're kind of Pheasants Forever is tied in with uh, with the Pheasant Preserve where I guide at. Uh, the guy that owns that is actually our, our local like chapter president, and uh, so I help out with like some of the youth hunts and stuff like that over there and whatnot. And then uh, um, I got involved with the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, which uh, I know that story is coming. Um, and then uh, uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Um, and there's a couple other ones too, where a Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, they're a great one. Um, you know, so I've been involved with, with a handful of organizations and, uh, you know, there's some of them that were, you know, that I'll always be involved with. And there's other ones that, you know, after being involved with for a year or so, I was like, okay, this one's not really a good fit for me. I'm going to, I'm going to look for something else that maybe gives me more opportunity. Um, you know, I mean, I ultimately I'm looking for an organization where there's opportunity to get your hands dirty and, and help out and stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not ignorant to the fact that um, writing a check or making a donation is a huge part of it all takes money. That's the uncomfortable thing. Nobody likes asking for money, but yeah. all of this takes money. But um, you know, some organizations went, when I asked what, what could I do to get involved and, and they really just wanted me to just throw money at them. And I'm like, well, that's great. I'm willing to do that, but I'd also like to get my hands dirty a little bit too. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I really like the, the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. Yeah. So, and, and well, first off, it, it's, uh, it's an interesting one because being in, you know, uh, Northeast Pennsylvania there, uh, I don't really think about mountain goats when I think about Pennsylvania. So, yeah. so what was it about the, um, the goat Alliance that I guess, you know, piqued your interest or what, what, uh, about that made you get involved? Um, again, it kind of comes back to that podcast, uh, the mediator podcast there were, uh, they were talking about about 2% and also, uh, Pete Munich was on there talking about the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance. And, um, and I just remember, I remember him saying like, um, I remember them talking about like, just, man, if you want an organization that uh, allows you to get your hands dirty and actually like allows you to get out there and volunteer and induce to get your boots on the ground, he was like, the goat Alliance is, is definitely one of them. He was like, you know, you can go count goats on the weekends out and, you know, out West and stuff for the, for the goat counts, um, that they do for fishing game. And then, uh, also, too, um, I didn't know about it at the time, but, you know, later on down the pipeline came this relocation project in Washington state that I was able to help out with. Um, so, I mean, I really just wanted an organization that gave me opportunity to get involved and get my boots on the ground. And maybe there's a little bit of like kind of. Uh, I don't know, kind of lusting after like some of the wild species of the West, you know, I was like, I've obviously being from Pennsylvania, I've never had a chance to interact with mountain goats. So, you know, maybe a little bit of it was a little bit like selfish. I'm like, man, that'd be cool. I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to go do something different. So, uh, yeah, but I think it was selfish for the right reasons. You know what I mean? It's not like you, yes. you weren't really going to gain anything out of, out of offering to help. It was just a, a curiosity in the species that you, you know, you haven't really had much interaction with that, that drew you to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, selfish isn't the right word. Like maybe like uh, just like there's some personal, like a little bit of like personal interest to like maybe cool to get up close to one of those things and see, you know, interact with something different besides white tail and stuff, you know? So, so you mentioned uh, goat relocation and I know there's a story behind that. So tell, tell, tell me about your, your experience with relocating some goats, like where, you, where they were coming from, where they were going to all that. Uh, so I was, man, I was just scrolling through Instagram the one night and, uh, and I think it was, it was 2%. Uh, they made a post about, um, you know, volunteer opportunities, uh, working with mountain goats in Washington state. And I'm just like, Hmm, that sounds cool. 
you know, so I, I, I got on there and, and I kind of looked at the website and saw what it was about. And then, you know, I ended up getting forwarded to, I think the Goat Alliance. And then after that, maybe forwarded to, uh, you know, Washington Department of Fish and Game. And basically what it is, is they were relocating the mountain goats out of Olympic National Park and moving them <clears throat> to the Northern Cascade Range. Uh, so they were moving them out of the park because they're non-native to that area. And they were kind of getting into some trouble and stuff in the park. And they just wanted to get them out of there. And they figured, well, if we can get them out of here, we'll take them to the Northern Cascade Range where the, the numbers are, you know, the numbers are declining and they're kind of below objective there. Um, so anyways, I applied for one of the positions, which is, uh, the volunteers got to drive refrigerated trucks full of mountain goats. And, uh, and I applied and they wanted two man teams and, uh, conveniently, uh, my best friend, he moved out there within the last couple of years. Um, cause his wife, his wife took a job out there and he was only 30 minutes from where the, the meetup site was. So I was like, man, that's perfect. So I put him and I down and it gave me a chance to get out there and, and visit, visit him and spend some time with him. And then, uh, we went up there and did our thing hauling the goats around. Um, so I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't have, I had no idea what to expect. So I just got on a plane, I headed out there and, uh, so we met up, um, we met up and they, they went over the controls of like the refrigerated trucks and what to do, what not to do and all this stuff. And then, uh, you know, they gave us very, uh, like very detailed directions, which, uh, my friend Steve, uh, who I'd like to point out has a master's degree, could not follow. Um, <laughs> you know, he, uh, yeah. So it's like, it's like, Hey, bring a tent because you're probably going to stay overnight at the, the, you know, where we're going to release them. And, uh, yeah. He, he misread that. He goes, I live 30 minutes from the meetup site. We're just going to stay at my house. So he didn't bring a tent. Another reason I like to point out it's ironic that he has a master's degree and I question his intelligence is uh, he got married. He got married September 17th. I don't know if anybody hunts elk, but I know he does. And those dates don't line up. So he got married during the elk rut and then he popped his first kid out during the whitetail rut. And I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah, I get so, I mean, I, I hate to interrupt you, but I get so frustrated when we get invitations for weddings that are like anything past October 15th I just think was, I, I mean oh it's super selfish of me and my wife reminds me of that every time it comes up I'm like what are people thinking like why would you get married in any time after you know for for Michigan here like October 1st like why I I know there's like there's more there's more weekends or there's more months out of the year where it's okay to get married than not you know what I yeah. mean it's like you had to pick that one. Yeah, it's get, like what really sets me off. if it's people that don't hunt you're like okay I get it it's ignorance but like when it's somebody that hunts it just absolutely puzzles me. I had a buddy get married on the first day of PA archery season, the one, the one year. Granted, it's probably the worst day of archery hunting in the whole season, yeah. but it's not the point. And it's like, I'm like, what, what are you thinking? Like, yeah, I can't wrap my head around it. So, uh, yeah, so Steve, master's degree, uh, got married during the elk rut, had his first kid during the whitetail rut, and forgot the tent for the goat trip. A lot um, of questionable decisions by Steve. Yeah, yeah, and I know <laughs> he's going to listen to this too, so I'm, that's why, you know. <laughs> not afraid to call him out by name uh so anyhow we went up there we met up we drove up into the park and i've never been to olympic national park and i just uh i had a little bit of an experience elk hunting um uh not out on the peninsula but just like um somewhere down around uh, mount adams i think when about 10 years ago i did some elk hunting down there and the mountains were, were, were beautiful down there but it wasn't real rugged like the peninsula was you know so i i didn't realize that washington was that rugged until i got out into the peninsula and i'm like holy cow and we drove up into the park and it was just it was beautiful and uh we get up there and we pull down into where they're you know they're doing the goat thing and it was just real quiet because they didn't want to stress out the goats uh, any more than they had to and they were you know, so what they were doing is they were going up in a helicopter and, uh, you know, they were darting them and then they would come down and they would, they would bind them up and they'd put horn protectors on them so they didn't hurt themselves or anybody else. Uh, they blindfolded them. They put them in this, this kind of like a, almost like a hammock looking thing, kind of like a, you know, makeshift stretcher. And, mm -hmm. and they, it would, re yeah, then they would bring them in and they would check their health and they would put the, the, you know, the collar on them so they could track them. Um, and they just, just, you know, just kind of assess them and their health and everything. And then what they did is they put them in a crate and they let them come to, and the, the crate was obviously breathable and whatnot. And, uh, you know, from there, what we did is we, you know, we loaded them in the truck and we had to drive about seven hours to the Northern Cascades where we were going to release them. But, uh, the park service was, was so cool. They were, you know, we were low men on the totem pole. We were just truck drivers, you know, and it was, <laughs> we weren't mugging the goats, we weren't shooting them with darts, you know, and it was like, 
Um, we were low men on the totem pole, but it was really cool because at first when we got there, they let us know like, hey, look, like your job is to drive the truck and to drive the truck only. Like, you know, if we need you for something else, we'll let you know. Because they have to throw that out there. They don't They don't need somebody out there making a bad judgment call, touching the goats or doing something stupid. Right, but right. once they realized that we were, uh, you know, that they didn't, you know, that, that we were okay, they, they weren't worried about us, they they actually allowed us to do more than I thought we were going to. They, they they were actually pretty cool. They were like, you know what? They were like, if you want to get some pictures, here's a great spot to stand. You won't be in the way right here. And it was like, they could have told us, hey, stay over there by the truck and stay out of everybody's way. Yeah. Um, but they, they involved us as much as they could because they, they realized it was a it was a pretty unique opportunity. So um, Fish and Wildlife, the Park Service, they were great to work with. And then, so what we did is we, we, we loaded them on the truck and uh, we had to cross, uh, I think it was the Puget Sound there. And I just remember uh, the most peculiar moment in my life. I'm driving, a I'm from Pennsylvania, I'm driving a refrigerated truck full of mountain goats and I'm sitting on a barge in that truck overlooking like the Puget Sound looking at the city of Seattle. And I just couldn't help but like ponder like how the hell did I get here? Like this is such a strange, strange situation. But it's such an awesome story uh, in terms of conservation because, you, it, I mean, like you just laid out there. I mean, that's that to me, that's really going above and beyond. I mean, you have an interest in goats. You know, it's it's something you haven't really had much experience with. Ah, we'll sign up to to do a, like a, a goat transport. Right? Works out. You end up doing that. You're driving seven hours in a refrigerated truck with goats. You're now on a barge crossing the Puget Sound and you know, letting goats go back into, into the wild in a different mountain range. I mean, that's, that's pretty awesome. I mean, to me, that shows a lot of, uh, you know, dedication towards the, the betterment of an animal of a species and things like that. Yeah. And truth be told, I really didn't have an interest in hunting goats before this. Um, you know, I just, I, I think it's probably cause you have no interaction with them, right? Like right. it's, I think you could probably relate like, you know, there, there's animals that you never really had an interest in hunting until you saw one. And then you're like, I wonder if I can get within bow range of that thing, you know? And it's yeah. like, all of a sudden something clicks and I never had an interest in hunting goats. And then I went and I interacted with these things and it might sound weird to somebody that doesn't hunt, but it's like after interacting with them and kind of gaining this respect for them, you're like, man, I'd love to chase one of them in the mountains with a bow and arrow. And, um, the one thing that I just won't forget about the trip is every hour we had to stop and lift up the back of the truck and let the air circulate so that they kept getting fresh air in the truck. Um, and there was a big billy in the back of the truck and this crate door was facing the door where, you know, so when I lifted it up to, to circulate the air, there he was like face to face with me. And they have like, for those people that aren't familiar with goats, they have like these golden color eyes that are just like really cool, but kind of like just almost like creepy, man. They go like right through it. And, and I, I open up this door and I'm like looking in the eye of something like so insanely wild. Like, I mean, goats are, I mean, they're the wildest of the wild, man. And, and it's like, I'm a foot and a half away from this thing's face and he's calm as could be. And he's just looking at me and I'm just looking at him. And I'm sure both of us are like, how the hell did I get here? Which <laughs> let, me, let me, let me make this point. Can you imagine, can you imagine when he gets let go on the mountain and then like finds the other goats are like, Bro, how'd you get here? And he's like, dude, don't, don't even ask. Yeah. <laughs> I woke up in the back of a truck with some random dude staring at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I was like, I just like, man, I'm just looking this like, I mean, more wild than a white tail or, or anything that we've hunted out here out east. And it's like, I just remember like just look being eye to eye with with that goat, and I'm just like, man, I'm, I felt like I was looking at something that like you know most people just will never get the chance to be that close to. And it was it was really really cool. Um, so we uh, we made it to our destination up in the northern Cascades. It was we we drove up this access road that like actually it, I think it went from like pavement to dirt to like one lane dirt to like logging road and then it just ended because uh, i was like when, like when do we know like where to stop they're like you'll know <laughs> <laughs> they're like you're gonna spend the night out there and uh the helicopter is gonna come out with the biologists in the morning and then what they would do is they would lower the harnesses and stuff and uh you'd hook up the crate and and the biologist would would you know, go up in the helicopter and take them up on top of the mountain and they would let them go up there. Um, so I wasn't a part of actually letting them, you know, come out of the crate. Uh, so, but anyways, we camped up there. This is where the tent thing comes in. We didn't have a tent. And, uh, so like we're sleeping in the cab of this refrigerated truck and there's like a, a plastic center console that doesn't, that doesn't fold up, you know? So it's just like, it was, and, and these goats are loud. Like they make, I can't even mimic the noise, but they're just like mewing and, and groaning and making all these noises and they're like kicking and rocking the truck. And it was like collectively the worst night of sleep I've ever got. 
my life. It was horrible. It was horrible. And then it was like, and then like the next night I had to, you know, we had a little bit of sleep and then I caught like an early morning flight back to Pennsylvania. And then like, you know, so between the, the no sleep with the goats, a couple hours of sleep the next night, being on a plane for X amount of hours. When I finally got back to PA, I'm like, did that just happen? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's quite the whirlwind. But again, blame Steve, man. Always Steve's I, fault. I, do, I don't let him forget it at all. <laughs> at all. So. so how long did, does the process take? Like, you know, after, well, one, I guess, how many goats did you have on your truck? We had seven. We okay. had seven ours, and then there was another truck that was that was uh, like in tandem with us, and I I don't remember if they had six or seven, um, and I forget the exact numbers that they relocated out of the park. I want to say it's like in the the three hundred range or something. Um, it was actually. It was actually supposed to happen. Well, it is happening again this summer, and I was looking forward to going out and helping with it again. But uh, due to COVID, they're not accepting any volunteers or doing it all with like fish and wildlife employees. Um, you know, so conservation uh, for me this year is going to look a lot less sexy than it did last <laughs> year. Volunteer opportunities to to haul goats or band waterfowl. So it just looks like picking up the trash this year, but it's equally as important, you know. So um, and that's I mean that's something I, I definitely want to voice. It's like. Yeah, I mean, you, know, you might have like some rare opportunities once in a while to go haul goats or maybe do something with sheep or elk or something like that. But uh, don't overlook like picking up trash on your dirt road or or like when I'm out guiding every night, um, if I see trash in the water, I pull up to it and I pick it up, you know, and it's like and and I think that leaves an impression on people too, like clients and stuff. So you picking up you know stuff out of the out of the water and it's something that they normally wouldn't have recognized and then they're pointing out trash you know when they see it first they want you to pick it up and stuff so uh all that stuff's important you know and it's not always hauling goats yeah i mean that's like you said um like hauling goats or, or banding waterfowl like yeah those are the the sexy things when it comes to conservation and, and those are the things that i don't necessarily think a lot of people think about uh in terms of it. i think for the most part people would probably think more about like cleanup projects, things like that with, with conservation. But yeah, it's, it's equally, um, as important if, if not, you know, well, I don't want to say more so or less. So I think it's, it, it's all equally important, um, in terms of habitat and wildlife. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, what, uh, how long did, um, it take, let's say for, uh, to, to relocate one of the goats, like, you know, when they would put it on, um, uh, put it, put it on the, the stretcher or the crate, you know, and haul it up into the mountains. How long would something like that take per goat? It, it was, it was pretty quick. Yeah. It was, it was only a few minutes really. Um, you know, maybe five, maybe five minutes in between. Um, cause we were pretty much at the base of the mountain where mm -hmm. they were lifting them up to, and they had a, they had a pretty good system where they would just drop the harness and we would just hook up the crate and they lift it up and they go up there and open the door and let it go. And they come back for the next one. So it really didn't take too long at all. And I mean, long enough, it, it was short enough to where it was like, when, like, when, when it was over, you're like, Oh crap, it's, it's done already. Yeah. And now, now we go home, you know? And it's just like, cause that's, I'll, very good chance i'll never have that opportunity again you know and it was like it was kind of you know i was like ah man so it's over already yeah. so so as far as uh well with with your guiding business how late does your season run you said it starts in the middle of may but when does it actually uh wind down for you you know uh in new york we could sh we could bow fish until september 31st but um the overnight temps get chilly in September up north, and yeah. uh, when it gets chilly like that, it pushes the fish out of the shallows. Um, you know, so I, you know, I tell people it gets pretty marginal around like September first. Um, you know, I might push it, you know, a week or so into September, but usually you get later in September, and it's just not too productive. And, yeah. and it's like, uh, it's like if there's not a lot of fish in the shallows, I, I don't want to take people's money to to shoot at a couple of fish. I'd rather just like cut it off at the beginning of September and and uh, make sure that they're going to see a lot of fish when they go out. So. Um, you know, but then what, what I did this past year is I went down to Florida, uh, to guide bow fishing down there, um, uh, for stingrays, uh, in the spring while I was waiting for our season to open up in May. Um, so kind of got to travel with it a little bit, you know, to, to piece it together year round and stuff. But, um, so I went to Florida inconveniently, uh, they ordered the, uh, the stay at home order as soon as I got down there. So that kind of, kind of put the kibosh on a lot of things, yeah. but there's worse places to be quarantined than handle Florida. That's true. That's true. You could have, yeah, really anywhere else could, it could be worse. So, <laughs> so one last thing here. So what does, uh, what does the fall look like for you coming up as far as uh, hunting goes? 
Uh, there's actually like a big question mark on it. Um, there was uh, there was a potential opportunity uh, in September for like phase two of uh, of the goat project there, and uh, I'm not going to be involved in that. And I was kind of like I wanted to plan my schedule around that, so I didn't put in for any crazy draws. I just picked up some points and stuff like that in states that I already had points in. Um, so I don't know. I you know I, I think. I think I'm probably maybe just going to jump in the truck and head west in September and just pick up an over-the-counter mule deer or elk tag somewhere and, and just, just get out there in the mountains and, you know. Or I have a buddy that drew a decent tag in Montana this year. I might tag along with him just to hopefully pack some meat. So no plan set in stone yet. Um, you know, once whitetail season rolls around in the Midwest, we'll be, we'll be busy out there. But September is a big question mark right now. Now, are you still going to guide in uh, Missouri this year for whitetail? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, I— I, I, the bow fishing is a ton of fun and, and, you know, but I would say that my favorite thing is still chasing whitetail with the bow, you know, and it's just like, at all, at all the things I get to guide, um, that's probably my favorite. It's just like, I don't know. That's just like, it's my passion. And then also too, there's a, there's a moment that you share with a client when you walk up, you know, you guys walk up on his first Pope and young animal, uh, that you don't get when somebody shoots their first carp, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because, so, yeah, there's another carp, you know, maybe, you know, five minutes down the lake or, or down the shore, where, how, however you're fishing. But, yeah, so I actually, real quick sidebar, I uh, I shot my first archery buck this past season. And I had, like, I, I never, I'd always hunted, but I never really took archery hunting that seriously uh, up until maybe four years ago um, when I actually really started putting in the work and, and you know, doing the, the necessary things to become um, a an average bow hunter, let's say. And so it was, yeah, like second, November 7th is when I, is when I got it. And on our property, we, uh, we, my brother, it's basically, it's myself, my brother-in-law and my father-in-law that, that hunt this. And it was just my brother-in-law and I that day, like it was, everything had lined up perfectly, right? Like November 7th. So, you know, the ruts, it's either just starting or you're, you're in the thick of it. And we had, we got like five inches of snow that day and the temperature plummeted, the pressure went through the roof, like all the things that you're looking for, right? So we called an audible and we were like, okay, we need to get up there tonight. So we literally rolled into um, our cabin where we stay at like midnight that night. We're up by five to get over to the property. And it was just, I mean, one of those days, like dead silent, super cold. I had three bucks within the first 45 minutes that had come within within range i shot at one uh you know made a made a bad shot it was a very low shot and i just kind of clipped the brisket you know so we tracked for you know we had good blood for well good blood is is putting it generously we had blood for maybe the first 30 40 yards and then even with snow it just it just dried right up and, and we you know didn't have any luck and and had basically come to the conclusion that yeah it was it was a very low brisket shot i mean the only time you would really find blood is if it looked like the tracks had like crossed over a log or something there might be a little drop or two on the log so i was pretty defeated man like i was just crushed so we uh get back into the stands you know mid-afternoon and uh like four o'clock i threw out a couple like blind grunts about 15 minutes later in comes this you know, in comes a, you know, three and a half year old, eight point, And he got to like 20 yards broadside and just, you know, thankfully I made a better shot that time, you know, heart, <laughs> you know, double or got him through the heart and he went, you know, 60, 70 yards and, and died right there. And all of this, this whole story is basically like the feeling that you talked about when you have uh, a client with their first name, his, the, the example you used was Pope and young. Uh, mine was not Pope and young, but still, when my brother-in-law who I've hunted with, you know, all the time for the last five years, six years, when he came up, I mean, it was a, it was a pretty cool thing because he's, he's heard all the stories. He's, he's seen the heartbreak for, you know, bad shots I've had in the past or just missed deer, whatever the case is. So yeah, it's a, it's a feeling that you can't really describe, you know? Yeah. I I feel you, man. It was uh, I can't remember, um, this past season I shot my best buck ever, uh, I want to. I can't remember if it was this November sixth or seventh. So it was like right in that same, you know, probably twelve hour window that you shot your deer. Yep. And, uh, I, you know, I think about three days before that. So I, 
every every buck I've ever shot has been like a you know nine ten like I've never gotten a true stud of an eight point right like when I was younger I shot smaller eight points you know mm-hmm. but I've never shot just like a pig of an eight point and I've I, I've really kind of been on a mission and one of them turned up this year uh, out in Missouri and I I rattled him in this is a few days before I killed my buck I rattled him in and I mean he was coming like he was on a string and uh, I mean he was probably 145 inch eight point and he was just a stud and he's coming right at me and very few times with a bow in your hand do you feel like oh this is a done deal like this is actually going to happen like yeah. usually it, man i don't know and it was like the wind was in my face the way that it pinched in like the land pinched in and there was a fence and a ditch like, i'm like man he's got to come right by me it's going to be like a 10 yard shot he's on a mission i'm like taking off my gloves so i can feel my knees <laughs> i'm like i'm just like licking my chops i'm like dude this is this is gonna happen <laughs> and like then he, like he gets like 60 yards and he does like the head like left right like looking around the tree like looking at something i'm like yep. i know he doesn't see me i got all sorts of cover i know he doesn't smell me because the wind's in my face and i'm like what is going on and i like turn i look over my shoulder and there's a coyote sitting on his ass at like 30 yards just sitting there looking at the deer and i'm like are you kidding me like what's the chances like what's the chances of this and I'm like, so I'm like kind of flicking my hat like behind me at the coyote, like trying to like scare him off. And I'm like, I was trying to run him off and I couldn't. And anyways, long story short, the deer got nervous and just trotted off. And my heart was like broken. I'm just like, I couldn't go back in there for the next couple of days because the wind was wrong. And I was just like, I'm like, man, so I'm like really, really bummed about it. And we had picked up a new farm uh, that my buddy wanted me to scout and hang a stand on and just hunt it a little bit and just see what, you know, check it out. And, uh, I truthfully, I really wasn't that excited about it. Cause I was like, I was after this eight point that gave me the slip and I'm like, all right, whatever. You know? So I, I went and hunted this new farm. Well, I went and I, I hung a stand and then, um, I hung a stand and then I gave it a couple days to cool off and then waited for the wind to be right. And I went back in there, you know, I think like two, three days later. And, uh, when I was in there, it was like 150 some inch deer comes. Well, actually it's a funny story. Uh, the neighbor, uh, is not receptive to out of state hunters. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, he doesn't really like the idea of guiding and stuff. And, and he doesn't even own the property next door. He just has permission to hunt it. And he tries to police the property around it. Like it's his too. And, and he was driving up and down the property line on the four wheeler and yelling and trying to ruin my hunt. And, uh, I almost left, you know, I was just like, man, this sucks. I was like, really like, I'm like, I was just kind of bummed, but I was like, I was like, you know what, you're here. What are you going to do? You're going to go back to the lodge and sit down. You know what I mean? Just hang, just, you know, tough it out. Well, I hear the guy yelling and then all of a sudden, like some deer come running down into this finger where I hung the stand and I've one, I could tell was like a decent buck and I'm looking at him and in the binoculars and, and he was frozen looking over his shoulder, like where this guy was. And I just, it was like low light. He was 42 yards in the timber and I, I could only really see the one side. And I'm like, man, he's like a 130 inch deer, which I mean, that's a great deer. You know yeah. what I mean? But I was just, you know, I was just like, just looking, I'm like, I don't think I'm going to shoot him. And, uh, and then I'm watching him for like 15 minutes and all of a sudden he turns his head and I could see double split brows. And I see like this three inch thicker coming off the G3 and I'm like, wait a second, what? <laughs> I'm like, and then I'm like, you know, I grab my bow and I'm like, man, like all of a sudden when the switch flips from like, I'm not going to shoot this deer to I'm going to shoot this deer, you just, you're just like, uh, and I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm like, dude, get it together. Like, do you want to be the guy that makes the shot or not? Like take a big breath. You get excited later. Just like, just make it happen. And I'm like, I'm like kneeling down to shoot under a limb. And like, it was like, it was. I, I had a real small window to shoot, but I ended up putting putting a good heart shot on him, and he went 30 yards and went down. But he went down into the ditch. I couldn't see him go down, and uh, so it was funny. My my friend Steve, uh, the one that's made some poor life choices, uh, <laughs> he, uh, him and I would always we'd always go on hunting trips together. We would always wait to go track a deer. If one of us shot a deer, we would wait for the other one to get there to track it and stuff. So with him being across the country, I called him and I said, hey, man, I said, uh, why don't you go to the fridge and grab a beer and uh, why don't you track this deer with me over the phone? And he goes, he goes, what do you mean go to the fridge and get a beer? He's like, you're assuming I don't already have one. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so he does he, make some good decisions. He was actually celebrating because he actually uh, they, they just had their baby that day. Uh, you know, so it was, it was a good day for both of us. And and he was on the phone with me and, and uh, he was telling me all about that. And and I'm tracking the deer and I, I walked up and I just saw the spray and I, I knew it was a good shot. And, uh, you know, like 30, you know, he went 30 yards and I recovered him. And uh, yeah, no, he was bigger than I thought he was. I thought he was like a, I thought he was like 140 inch deer with um. I thought he was like 140 inch deer with some cool stuff and he ended up being 152 and three eighths. And, uh, yeah, I was, I was super happy. 
Yeah, that that's a pig, man. That's that's a heck of a deer. I mean, that's for a lot of people, especially you know in the east or the Midwest. I mean, that's a that's a once in a lifetime buck right there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, but yeah, November seventh or sixth, whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, where can people find your company at? So, man, for people that are looking for you know any type of guiding services. Man, I uh, I'm still in the process of building my website. Truth be told, I've been been occupied the last year with getting like first of all just getting everything, all the equipment stuff, but then getting my captain's license and the right insurances and this and that, and and it's just been yeah. You know, I'm I'm making excuses. I should have had the website done by now, but um, I right, honestly I've just been running things off of my Instagram. Not that I have a huge following, but I, I'm able to book a lot of hunts and stuff off of people just following me on on Instagram. Uh, it's at Demi Ethan D E M I E T H A N. Um, and then also to, uh, the, the outfit in the Midwest, if anybody's interested, it's not my business. Uh, it's, uh, it's just a friend of mine. I help him guide that is spring Creek outfitters of Missouri. Um, they offer uh, great deer hunting at you know, a very affordable price. They offer lodging dinners. Um, you know, it's, it's a really, it, I mean, I know I'm probably biased, but it's, if I'm bang for your buck, um, what they, what they get with a five day hunt for what Mike charges is, uh, I think is unmatched. So awesome. Well, Ethan, I, uh, I really appreciate you taking some time to sit down and, and tell us about uh, some of the conservation work that you're doing, um, about your company being 2% certified as well. Uh, I really enjoyed speaking with you, man. You got some, you got some great stories, and, and I'm excited for people, for people to hear them. Yeah, you as well, man, for sure. Uh, definitely keep in touch, and, and maybe we could get you out here to do some bow fishing in New York if you have some time. And uh, if not, you know, maybe when I head to Missouri or something like that, we could meet up somewhere out that way and, and do something, even if it's just like random duck hunting or something like that. So Yeah, for sure, man. I'm always up for something. So, all right, man. Well, it was great chatting with you. All right, you Thanks. too. Thanks a lot, Ethan. All right. Yep. Bye. Okay. A big thank you to Ethan for hopping on today and sharing his story with us. I also want to thank our partners over at Stone Glacier. Uh, You can find them online at stoneglacier.com. And if you guys are in the market for some new new gear, be sure to check out my store, The Average Conservationist. Uh, You can find us online at theaverageconservationist.com where we have different hats, um, hoodies, t-shirts, things like that. Um, And 10% of all of our sales are going back to conservation. Uh, And I'd also like to thank our partner, Uh, 2% for Conservation, and if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, uh, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org, and there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation, um, including Ethan's company and our partner Stone Glacier, um, that you should support when you're shopping for your uh, coffee, gear, guiding services, really uh, anything that you can think of. Uh, I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where it's going to be nothing but uh, positive conservation-driven content. Uh, again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look them up online on their social medias or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I appreciate it. Uh, Stay safe out there. And remember that conservation starts with you.